Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 52, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. Are you still nursing that hangover, Dan? <laughs> well, from Christmas? Yeah. I think I'll be nursing a hangover for like three months, I think. <laughs> Have you got any resolutions this year? Oh, uh, well, you know what? Well, actually, I'm doing dry January now. Okay. So I had a dry October, didn't I, a couple of months ago? Oh. After that, though, I don't know about you, it, everything I tend to do as a New Year's resolution tends to fall by the wayside. <laughs> yeah. yeah so pretty I'm think, much. I'm Two think, days. Well, I'm thinking uh, this year, okay, maybe not go to the gym. That's one of my New Year's resolutions. Excellent. Yep. Yeah. Sleep more. Yep. Eat more junk food, drink more alcohol. I'll stick to all them. That'll be fine. Yeah, maybe it'll work. Yeah. Waste all my money on video games even more. Yeah. <laughs> How was your Christmas anyway? You have a nice one? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's good. Got plenty of nice things and uh, I'm just feeling a bit podgy at the moment. Aren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> so, I hope you guys had amazing Christmases and uh, welcome to our first show of 2017. Totally. What year it's going to be as well. Yeah, and what a guest we've got today. We were saying, weren't we? Who's going to be on our first show of 2017? Because we want to hit the ground running, want to start this year with a bang. Well, it's 2017 and we've got the head of Team 17. <laughs> yeah, it's Martin Brown. And, you know, this guy took the company from the smallest kind of roots as a public domain company mm-hmm. to having the Worms franchise to being one of the world's most recognised software houses. Think of the Team 17 games I used to play. Obviously, Worms, Worms DC... Project Amazing. X, Alien Breed. That? Yeah, all of those. Super Stardust. Super Frog. Super Fro- oh, there's so <laughs> many. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think in terms of like those kind of mid-90s real quality games that came out on the Amiga, and I mean, you know, Team 17, Worms is like on every franchise, isn't I it? I think it was ported to 32 different systems. It's an insane amount of different <laughs> popularity it had. It's probably Worms, Lemmings and Doom that are the three games that are on everything, isn't it? Yeah, so, definitely. <laughs> Martin is our first guest. Martin Brown from Team 17 is going to be on the Retro Hour in around 20 minutes from now. And we're going to keep this quality going all the way through this year as well. Totally. And we're going to be running a competition as well. Now we are. Now, do you remember a guest we had on last summer? A couple of famous guys who were known for um, a certain quite popular video games character from the UK. Yeah, two guests, actually. It was, uh, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. A pair of twins, and they're the Oliver twins. They've just released a great book. What's it called? They have. Now, this is um, the story of the Oliver twins. Let's go dizzy. You've got it in your hands there. Have listen, listen. Ooh, that nice sounds like a quality book, doesn't it? <laughs> Even smells like, you know. I love the smell of freshly printed books. Yeah. But this this book's book. fantastic. You know, they sent us a, a preview copy yeah. and it's basically got about the unreleased games that they had. It's got about their history. It's got some incredible photos with really bad 80s fashion throughout. <laughs> um, and, so, and some of these dizzies actually dress better than the Oliver Twins. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's kind of the real British story here from like homebrew to success. And, you know, if you're a dizzy head or you're, you're a massive fan, this is just perfect. And we're offering you a unique opportunity. You can get a signed, personalised version by the Oliver Twins in your name if you win this competition. So this is 230 pages, this book, all in full colour, gorgeous, glossy pages as well. And there is, you know, when we interviewed them last summer, and uh, if you didn't miss that episode, we'll pop it in our show notes as well, because it was a really, really good interview we did with them. And they were kind of hinting at a few little bits, and they were like, you know, there is some juicy stories, but you'll have to read it in the book. You know, some kind of the codes, Codemasters kind of years and the controversy, and, you know, a little bit more. I, I love reading a bit about Ghostbusters too. you know, when they worked on that yeah, game and the yeah. design process and stuff. It's like... Such an interesting book. And actually reading through this, you think, these guys did a hell of a lot in the 80s. Totally. And there's so much unreleased stuff in there. Yeah. It's like a 
treasure trove. So if you'd like to win a signed, personalised copy of the Oliver Twins' new book, they will sign it, you know, with your name, best wishes, a couple of kisses and all that, no doubt as well. <laughs> then all you've got to do is head onto our website, theretrohour.com, and answer this question. Who is Dizzy's girlfriend? Now, this is multiple choice as well. Is it A, Princess Peach? Is it B, Daisy? C, Amy? So if you're a Dizzy fan, that one should be pretty easy, shouldn't it? Yeah. All you've got to do, head on to our website, theretrohour.com. The competition is going to be open for the next two weeks, so we're going to close it on uh, January the 21st. That's a Friday night at midnight, so you've got two weeks to enter this competition. Leave your details on there, and then we'll pick out one winner at random from all the correct entries. Get the terms and conditions, enter that competition, and this signed copy of the Oliver Twins book could be yours on theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into this week's news, we just want to thank our very generous donators. Of course, every week, you know, we've said this before, but, you know, this is helping us keep the show going in 2017. So, guys, thank you so much. And obviously, with it being January, all the hosting stuff, we've been doing this a year now. Everything's due for a new list month, so yeah. anything in the little tip jar does help. Uh, thank you to Scott Marsden for your donation. Sebastian Kuhlman. And also Colin Reed, who've all made very generous donations through our little PayPal link at theretrohour.com. Now, kind of referencing back to guests that we had on the show last year, um, there has been a pretty high-profile Amiga movie that's been in development for, um, I think, about six years it's been in the making. Yeah, it's like all these guests we've had on, they've finally released all this stuff they've been talking about. And this is Viva Amiga. And actually, as you're listening now, it should be released worldwide on iTunes and all these platforms, Hulu... I think it's on... Um, Vimeo and stuff. Vimeo, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, Viva Amiga finally came out today, um, 6th of January, day this show comes out. And uh, Zach actually, you know, we did an interview with Zach last year. Really interesting guy, very passionate. You know, I think the movie was delayed a bit longer than he wanted to, but he's finally got it out there now. And uh, we've seen it. We actually yeah. got a little, you know, little early invite to watch the film before anyone else. Check it out on uh, AmigaFilm.com as well. That will have all your links. Yeah, that's yeah. our website. So, now that we've seen the film, um, what do you think? I thought it was really good. I thought it was a very American-focused, but mm-hmm. it was a, a very different to the Bedrooms to Billions film as well. So they're not kind of clashing on certain subjects, you know. They're, 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 they've both got their place. Absolutely. They really do complement each other. I think, you know, because this movie, the runtime is just over an hour long. And, you know, when I started watching it, I was like, oh, just an hour. I thought, you know, is that going to be enough time to, like, kind of cover everything, like the story of the Amiga? But actually, the movie it kind of flows really well mm. and it's really punchy. You never get bored watching it. It's just like the speed of the way they go through stuff, but they just give you the really important bits. Well, that's it. You know, if you've got a little bit of film and you, you mentioned something really good and then it's kind of, they've got nice transition visual effects and stuff, it, it really flows with the story and the production levels on this are insane. Mind-blowing graphics. And obviously, uh, one of our team, Paul Kitchen, he's actually been heavily involved in the 3D on this movie as well. And... Uh, I can... uh, yeah, it's cinema-style 3D. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's like, wow, yeah. You can see why Paul, yeah, I th- don't think anyone saw him for about six months today at one point. <laughs> no, yeah, I think he nearly pulled all of his hair out as well. <laughs> but it's so worth it. It's actually mind-blowing, The uh, you know, some of the, the the animations and stuff. You've never seen the Amiga look more beautiful and the graphics no, and no. stuff like that. And um, also, you know, what I think about this film as well is, and Zach mentioned this when he was on in our interview, and I think he's really achieved this, it's a very accessible film. It is really, you know, even if you're not like an Amiga head, like obviously my girlfriend kind of knows I like the Amiga and she's seen mm. me using it and stuff. But when I was watching this, she kind of came in halfway through and sat on the couch, started watching it and actually got quite interested in it. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not techie. It's not, it's not like the first part of Bedrooms to Billions. 
I love that stuff because that's my kind of target, which is all the kind of, you know, start of how the computers came, the chips, the chip models, all of this. Yeah. But this one didn't have that at all. It was, uh, I wouldn't say surface, but it was, it, was, it was just in that nice kind of place where it's accessible, but also a bit nerdy. I think it focused more on the people. Than yeah, the actual, yeah, yeah. you know, the story it, and how it, it affected it people and it touched yeah. people. It was more, it was a story. The people of, rather than the hardware. Yeah it, yeah, it wasn't showing you like, this is the, the CIA chip and all exactly, that kind of stuff. Exactly, because in the uh, Amiga years, they talked about how, oh, the mouse flowed really well and this helped certain games and stuff like this, where this is people's experience. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it kind of, you know, it goes from like, the early days with RJ and those, you know, the guys, original High Toro Amiga team, and then it kind of goes through the Commodore years. Um you did mention it is quite American-focused, and really, uh, there's not really a mention of the UK in this at all. Well, he's also mentioned it. He may be doing a part two. Yeah. So, we're going to get Zach on, and we're going to get him to tell us about this part two and what's going to be in there, because, uh, yeah, it was big in Europe and stuff, but all the creators are in America as well, so it's quite hard to kind of fit the whole Amiga world in a film, I guess. Well, I think, you know, the Bedrooms to Billions was a lot more of the UK focus, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, it? So yeah, but it was also kind of... very gaming-focused, yeah, wasn't it? So, exactly. Yeah. So, And, you know, there's even people in here, some of the bits I loved in the film were they've got, like, um, Kristen White um, and Jason Compton, who used to write Amiga Report magazine, if you remember yeah. that, back in the 90s. Uh, quite a few guys that we've never really seen on film before and that kind of stuff, but also just people that were users and loved the Amiga, yeah. talking about why it touched them and how it affected them and... I'd say out of all like the computer films I've ever watched, this is the most emotional as well. Mm, definitely, it's definitely. like yeah, Dave Needle as well. Yeah, it's, yeah I think yeah. it's Dave Needle's second to last interview, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but you know, it's just like you can really feel. You know, it's a very up and down movie. You really feel the heartbreak when things went wrong, but then it ends on a, a good positive note. So it's yeah, uh, you can tell it's been filmed over a long t- period because uh, Trevor's hair's um, <laughs> <laughs> still black. <laughs> yeah, I think they, they did start filming a lot of it about six years ago. <laughs> yeah. Poor Trevor. Uh, looking good though, Trev. Looking yeah. good. So uh, of course, if you want to watch that, it is out today. Uh, head to amigafilm.com and uh, we will do a follow up with Zach and find out what he's got in the pipeline next. Totally. Now, this is quite an interesting story. Um, The first ever NES Nintendo Entertainment System advert has been found. Now, you might be thinking, what was it lost? Um, But this is a guy who's uh, a big Nintendo enthusiast. He's actually an archivist or archivist. Don't know how you say that. This guy's name is Frank Kifoldi, and he's been trying to track down the first ever advert for the NES in North America. And he knew where it was located in, in a magazine, but he's been trying to find it for five years. So this has been a hunt to try and get this copy of this magazine from uh, late 1984, and he's finally tracked it down. And um, it's in a magazine called Consumer Electronics. And it looks pretty cool, actually. There is kind of um, it's a little teaser. See Nintendo unveil home entertainment's future, January the 5th, 1985. And it's a picture of like a monitor with like a you know, drape over it, so you can't see what's in there. Yeah, yeah. And next to it, they've got like Pong and an Atari, and it says the evolution of a species is now complete. It's, it's interesting because I'm looking at this and there's a picture of it below where it says, you know, Nintendo video game system, new market ground rules. And uh, it kind of looks like my scale at home. <laughs> <laughs> I used to weigh myself in the morning. It looks morning. nothing like the release version, does it? No, no. Well, what it is, because I mean, <laughs> he's actually saying the magazine screwed up here. Because they put this advert in there and it's all kind of, you know, mysterious with the veil over and all that. But apparently a few pages earlier, 
in their news section five pages before that <laughs> is this picture of it. So, oh, wow. you know, <laughs> yeah. They kind of ruined the surprise a little but bit. But it kind of looks a bit like a steamroller's ran over a NAS and just flattened it, you know? But what I think is cool about this is it's actually, it's not the final NES, it's a prototype called the AVS, the advanced video game system that um, is on display at Nintendo World in New York City. Oh. So what it is, that's kind of a prototype NES. And next to it, um, I at first I thought, is that a VHS video? Yeah, it lo- really looks like one, apart from it's got two little kind of buttons on it or something. Well, that is the prototype controller. Interestingly, it w- was going to be wireless. Oh, wow. Yeah, in 1984. <laughs> that would have been good. Infrared, probably. Yeah, probably wouldn't have been good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> y- your brother w- runs in front of the TV. Oh, no. <laughs> Put your hand over the sensor, yeah. yeah. The only system I've ever had with like infrared remote controls is like the, the Commodore CDTV. Yeah. You don't want a game with that controller over you, infrared. You have to yeah. stick in one position. <laughs> oh, it's just, yeah, lag city. So uh, I can see why they went to wide, you know, at that stage. But, you know, for some, I, I've never really seen that um, AVS prototype before. I thought it was pretty cool that you tracked yeah. it down. No, so. that's really cool. Yeah. yeah, if you want to read more about it, and I'll to pop see that. how kind of lo-fi the first advert was, you know. I mean, it had a little bit of excitement around it, though. You know, yeah, yeah. I love the kind of evolution thing they've done there. So, I'll pop that in the show notes at theretrohour.com if you want to find out more. Now, you might think Let's Plays on YouTube are kind of you know what teenagers and stuff do. Yeah, no. Well, we found a ninety-year-old granny <laughs> that's currently doing one, and um, her name's Shirley Curry, and she was kind of doing like Skyrim, yeah, and small videos, and then a. Uh, Suddenly she woke up one morning and she had 11,000... One morning. One morning. <laughs> Sound like, hello, hello. <laughs> <laughs> one morning. <laughs> and she had 10,000 emails from strangers in her inbox and she got completely scared. She said, it scared the pudding out of me. <laughs> that was it. So this is after her first ever... She did like a Skyrim Let's Play then, didn't she? Yeah, and someone put it on Reddit mm-hmm. and then it just completely blew up. They all it emailed her. And then she sat there replying to every single email politely. My word. <laughs> but, you know, she's she's embraced it now. Yeah, and... totally. She's playing everything at the moment. She's playing Call of Duty. She's playing Civ 2. You know, everything. I've watched so, her Skyrim stuff, and she's better than me at Skyrim. Yeah? Yeah, she knows. Her score's actually pretty decent on it. So I think that's awesome, though. And, you know, I, I think fair play, Shirley. You know, keep it going. Yeah, and she says, you know, she's had quite a few rude and hateful comments. Haven't we all? And then she offers them a chance to apologise. And lots of people have said, <laughs> sorry, Grandma Shirley, I yeah. shouldn't be so rude. You know? <laughs> You've got to respect your elders, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. now she's dishing out manners on the internet. It's oh, great. Shirley, keep it going. <laughs> yeah, keep it rocking. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, if you want to uh, watch some of her videos as well, I highly, you know, well, you didn't watch it at first, you think, oh, it's a bit of a novelty of a gaming granny. But actually, when you get into it, she's really good. Yeah, yeah, she is. Shirley Curry. Yeah, so check her out on YouTube. Definitely worth a look. And Just imagine if she was your grandma. The coolest <laughs> granny in the world. Totally. <laughs> now, the Atari Lynx is not a system that we've covered all that much on the show. I'm going to tell you something about the Lynx, though. Yeah? I've nearly bought one three times in the last month. Today, I In the last one. month? Yeah. I remember we nearly bought one at that retro show. And um, I went up to the guy and I was like, oh, yeah, can I get this and everything? And then I thought, I might as well ask if it actually works. Yeah. <laughs> and then he was like, no, the screen doesn't work. I was like, there's Good no chat. point. Yeah. <laughs> well, I keep seeing one, you know, um, over in Derby, Retro World in the Eagle yeah. Market over there. There's been one in there. It's kind of a retro gaming store near us in the market. There's been one in there for about four months now. And I was in there today doing a bit of shopping. Walked past it and I saw it on the shelf, 95 quid. And literally, I got my card out and the guys, oh, you know, we don't do cars, the car machine's broken. So I was uh-huh. like, oh, I'll go and get money and I changed my mind and didn't in the end. I was that close to buying it today. They're going to be shining it up now if they hear this. <laughs> it's like, it's the second model and not, not the original massive one, mm. you know, the smaller one. But yeah, it's maybe, a nice system. Maybe now's the time to buy it though. 
Yeah, definitely, because they've just released a new game for it. I'm going to let you say the title of the game. Oh, God. <laughs> Weltenschlachter. <laughs> Weltenschlachter? Yeah. <laughs> so well, is this kind of like a new game that's coming out on the links then? Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of just, it's not side-scrolling, it's just a kind of side-shooter, it looks like, and it's a, a, a little fun game, but, you know, they're saying that not many people have been interested in the Lynx for a long time. And they have this massive festival, which is called E-Jag, which is this massive Jagger event. And they're saying that this game kind of came from there. And this is off Funstock's website. Well, there is a YouTuber called um, QL versus Jaguar. He's one of my favourite Atari. He's like got the most insane Atari Jaguar collection. He's got pretty much everything. Um, and he's got all footage from like, you know, when the Jag was launched and like, you know, all the virtual reality, you know, I actually used a few of his clips in my Jaguar video I did a couple of years ago. Yeah. Nice guy, I've been talking to him quite a lot. And he goes every year and films this E-Jag Fest and does like a walk around. So definitely worth a look on YouTube, but it, it is like, you know, it's where you go in Europe if you're an Atari fan. Um, totally, they're saying, you know, they're releasing Atari books there, there's still people in the games industry that are there, you know, it's a, mm-hmm. a massive Jaguar event, it's amazing. We should go one day, man. Oh, it looks awesome. You know, I'd love to go along. And I'm going to play a little bit of the uh, the sound off this game, of this uh, Welton Schlachter. I'll listen to this. Very old school. Yeah, totally. Let's get that music again. <laughs> you know what I love about it as well? The put, like, trademark 1980, Luke Soft. Yeah. So like, probably go for that throwback kind of feel to it. But you know what it reminds me of? I mean, graphically, the Lynx can do a lot better than this. Mm. It does look like, you know, an early kind of Atari 8-bit game. Reminds me quite a bit of Jeff Minter's early games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of got that look. And um, I think they're kind of going for that old-schooly Atari look as well. You know, obviously the Lynx could do stuff like California games and stuff like that later on. Yeah. More, more kind of 16-bitty looking titles. But um, it's good that people are just developing for it now. And there's interest. Maybe there'll be an EverDrive. Maybe there'll be, you know, some strange add-ons for the Lynx. Well, there is a guy on the Atari H forum who's actually doing an SD card reader for it, which I think oh. is coming out early next year. Then he's, he's a guy who's doing the Jaguar one after as well. Nice. Maybe there'll be a remake of the Lynx. That would be good. I bet you can do it on a Raspberry Pi or something. Or one oh, of your yeah. Arduinos or something. Arduino your pocket Lynx. PC. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, that's awesome, though. I mean, you know, I love it when obscure platforms get your releases. Yeah, totally. It tickles me. Ever want to print your own Commodore pet? Oh, well, I, saw this, I saw this story, Dan, and I thought of you. Because I know that you want a Commodore pet. I do. Yeah, but they're the size of a brick, uh, a brick house, and you could kind of use them as a doorstop, and they're just completely, really heavy, aren't they? I, well? I live quite high up. I think it'd fall through my floor. Yeah, yeah, it'd probably kill your person below you. So this is um, a 3D-printed, um, LED-backed Commodore Pet. This thing looks awesome. Yeah, and it's under Creative Commons, so basically anybody with a 3D printer can get the plans of this and mm-hmm. print out their little pet. Now, the difference with this is that they've put this little board in there and the board is an actual LED board. So the screen of the 3D printed pet will glow with green LEDs and you can create little patterns on there. You know, you could even have a big C for Commodore or something. And it looks like um, like an old school... Ca- you know, when you're on a, like a train or something and kind of the information scrolls by, it's kind of that, like the Matrix. Yeah, kind of yeah, thing, but it's, yeah, dot Matrix style. Yeah, and it yeah. is the original, like, you know, kind of bright green colour that the pet was. The video yeah, on that, so. but it's just about the size for your Playmobil. Yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and 3D printers are becoming quite affordable now. Yeah, they're really good. We we had a few little nice 3D printed things, like a 3D printed Nextbox mm. and stuff like that. And 
you know, they're starting to look really nice. There's different methods. I remember when they first started doing it and the sides were looking all jaggy and the plastic would look a bit jaggy. Now they seem to have kind of smoothed that out. Yeah, and they're not as kind of stripey anymore, yeah, are they? No. Quite, yeah. But you know, I saw one you can get at home for about 800 quid now. Wow. It's like, you know, even like a year, two years ago, you'd. I remember that my local Asda here had one and it was kind of a novelty going in. The machine cost something like 50 grand or something. Yeah. But in two years, like you now get one for like 800 quid. Well, when we were at Amiga Amsterdam, we were walking past a few shops that had them in the windows and we were like, ah, oh, 3D yeah. printers. Yeah. But now, you know, spare under 800 quid, you can print your own Commodore PET. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Right then, thank you for checking out episode number 52 of the Retro Hour podcast. We'll be out again next Friday, available from all of your favourite podcast clients, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube. And of course, don't forget, we have got this competition running to win a copy, a signed, personalised copy of the Oliver Twins book, The Story of the Oliver Twins. Let's go, Dizzy. So all you got to do is answer the question. Who is Dizzy's girlfriend? A, Princess Peach, B, Daisy, or C, Amy? I've got two weeks from today. Enter that at theretrohour.com and then we'll pick out a winner. The Oliver Twins will sign it and leave you a nice little personal message in there as well. Yeah, I'm and sure they'll throw loads of Sky Saga goodies in there. <laughs> oh, they usually do. Well, it's like, you know, that is going to be such a collectible though, isn't it? You know, having a signed copy of that book for oh, you. Oh, totally. Like... And I, and I, you know, I think they might print a massive amount of these books yeah. as well. They're kind of for the hardcore fan. Yeah. So make sure you enter that on our website right now at theretrohour.com. Okay, are you ready for some Team 17 chat? We've got our interview with Martin Brown. Here we go. And we'll see you next Friday. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome our first guest of 2017. And what a guest to start the year with. Martin Brown, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, nice to be here. Now, um, before we get into your story of like Team 17 and uh, you know a lot of the games that Ravi and I absolutely adore, we just want to get a bit of a background on you. What was your first ever gaming experience then? Let's go all the way back. Um, I, I'd imagine it probably been um, on a home computer around about uh, early 80s, um, probably just about the time when the ZX uh, Spectrum and ZX81 had been around really. Um, so I just started playing games on them and uh, then got a VCS and we well, obviously just went through the whole rung of uh, computers and uh, video games since then, really. So. Did you used to frequent the arcade scene much? Um, well, I think around that time, um, yeah, I, I think I used to sort of hang around the back of Jack Records in Wakefield and uh, whilst I was going through college and uh, everything else, there'd be, um, um, I think it's an asteroid and... Uh, and something else, some of the crappy game actually uh, that was it that was in the common room. So yeah, I mean, uh, I used to do all that, and obviously um, get out to the coast and Blackpool and stuff. And things like that were a bit of a treat for me back then. I'm a bit horrified at the thought of going to Blackpool now. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what was your first then home computer system? I think I think it's probably the Specky. I got one for Christmas when I was about 15 or something, uh, which seems a long time ago now. Um, yeah, I would, I would think it was specky, and pr- pretty, pretty quickly after that, I went uh, Commodore 128, I had, <clears throat> then an ST, then obviously an Amiga for a bunch of years, uh, and then everything since then. Our house is still bloody full of kit. Really. <laughs> what kind of stuff were you doing on your Spectrum then in those early days when you first got it? When I, when I first got a specky, I was just intrigued by um programming really so i just i just started um you know doing the usual typing in stuff um 
uh, modifying it and all the rest of it. And then I got, I got, I started on uh, machine code and taught myself uh, machine code and assembler and everything, and uh, started to program really. But I think it was a, I had more fun just sort of creating stuff than playing games. I mean, I spent a lot of time looking at games and, and playing them, but um, I, I equally um, just like to like creating things really. I think you know those early kind of eight bits as well. I mean, you were kind of inspired to program because you turned them on you got dropped into basic didn't you so it's like absolutely yeah yeah no choice he was he was straight there i mean to even get something to run you had to essentially type a very very small program just just to load the game up so um i hear you were user of bbs and uh the kind of early online stuff at the time yeah i was i was i can't remember much about it these days i used to go on it when i come back from the pub um <laughs> I think there's a group on Facebook actually for all these sad old buggers that used to be on there. So uh, I think that's what we are now. I mean, that's, that's <coughs> very early geeks, I think, really. Um, was that how you kind of fell into the PD scene uh, through like CompuServe and stuff like that? Um, a little bit like that. Um, you know, so, certainly a lot of the stuff on the, on the 64 that was, was on CompuServe. Um, and again, I, I was sort of more intrigued by what people were creating demo-wise, art-wise, music-wise than, than games, really. So um, I think that, that really sort of propelled me, particularly on the Amiga. Um, so I got really involved with a lot of that and got to know an awful lot of people, um, which is sort of the semblance of bringing everybody together later on anyway. So. You know those early days on bulletin boards then? I mean, it must have felt quite magical, you know, just being able to commun- communicate with other people on your machine. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it was... Obviously, it was super early days, and, and the things were very basic back then. But you know, it certainly seemed magical. You know, um, at the time, with the, you know, pretty basic equipment we were using. When you think about it, you know, at dreadful speeds and all the rest of it. Um, but it, but you know, you met uh, sort of the like-minded fools um, and, and, and got on and uh, had a great time. Really, and it, it just felt pretty unique because not many people were doing that kind of thing. And um, uh, you know, I think I think it, it just uh, it just carried on really on, on the Amiga and just sort of uh, the, the sort of demo scene, if you like, just kind of exploded. So um, you kind of decided to start focusing on Amiga. Um, why did you pick that particular system? It's a weird thing, really. I mean, uh, the Amiga stuff. It was. It was like a big acceleration of everything that had gone before it, really, in terms of what you could do art-wise, music-wise, um, code-wise, everything else. And people were grouping together, and, and, and there was just a vibe about the sort of um, the users, really. You know, and I'd never really experienced it since where there's such a, a dramatic affection for the machine, really. So um, it was just kind of inspiring and people were comparing what they were doing to everybody else and that was um, you know, in, in further inspiring those people so um, I think it was just a very buoyant um, exciting time really and uh, you know we, we looked at what was going on and, and uh, we, we felt I think for the first time ever that we, we, a bunch of us could, could make a game that could you know, stand up uh, alongside um, not only other games that were coming out which most were actually ST parts but um, stuff that was going on in the, in the uh, arcades then Yeah, because um, I, I remember you first started 17-bit software um, which was one bit above the rest and um, we, as Amiga users we used to have 17-bit software 
like floppies absolutely everywhere. I think yeah. people probably had about twenty in each of their collection. Yeah, it's just one of those things. It, it just got just it was just like wildfire, really, and it, everyone got very excited, and everyone really liked it. And I think it was just a good time to be around uh, computing, really. So you know, for people that may not have experienced the Amiga demo scene. How do you describe that? The, the cool thing was like um, it was every just every few days there'd be um, a, a, a demo, some visual effects hung together with some music, some silly scrolly text, um, sort of further pushing the capabilities of, of what the, what the computer could do. Um, and so it was it was always um, just it just became a hot house and, and super exciting. Um. How did the relationship with Rico Holmes and Alistair Brimble start? So those guys were sort of members of the, the sort of something bit club, if you like, or whatever we we, we call it back then. Um, the, the, those guys, because um, we, we used to sort of appeal for people to send in artworks, what we'd, we'd feature on the sort of monthly demo disc thing that we put together. Um, so Rico um, and Alistair would, would sort of start pushing stuff together really early on and we, we started featuring that and, and making their, their work um, sort of central to, to, to the update, what we used to put out there. Um, and it's, everything kind of sprang from then and it was sort of later on when we received a, a game demo from Sweden, from Andreas, that um, decided to, talk to get all the guys together and, and form a team, really. You know, running a public domain library back then, I mean, you know, it seems insane now to imagine that we used to, like, you know, send, send like, you know, a fiver on a, on a postage um, order or, or a cheque and then wait, like, a week for a floppy disk to arrive. But what, was it a lot of work running a public domain library? What was kind of, like, a typical day? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we didn't just sit there by a copy machine all day. I mean, there was, there was an awful lot of stuff to sort of, you know, actually just creating the library, looking at stuff, putting it together. The monthly update became more and more complex and, and, and fully full-featured. So there's a lot of time putting all that together, looking at an awful lot of stuff. You know, it's uh, uh, one of those things. It's, it it kind of just sort of grew um, in, in its own thing. It was never kind of planned. It was all pretty ad hoc, really. And were you guys, like, was it kind of your full-time job then or were you doing it part-time? Um, it obviously started off, um, I mean, I, I worked in a, in a game store in, in Leeds and it, became, it, was, it was part-time at first. Um, and obviously, it, it just be, it became sort of a victim of its own success and became very, very busy. Uh, so I, I kind of ended up doing it full time uh, for about eighteen months, I think. And obviously, I, I think you only need to look at the sort of first fifty hundred discs. There's, there's so much stuff, mm. um, and it's all you know, and particularly all the sort of utilities and things. You, you know, you have to try them all out and see what everything's doing. I mean, I, I ended up writing a bit of stuff myself and putting that in there and, and all the rest of it. It was just, I don't know, it's just really, really good time to, you know, be sat sifting through all that stuff. So um, you mentioned um, that Atari ST ports, um, that they were kind of a lot of really bad quality ones. Uh, was yeah. that a source of frustration for you guys? Because you knew the Yeah, Amiga I mean, you know, we, we were big Amiga fans and, you know, we, we knew what, the, what you know, um, the machine was capable of so we were a little bit dismayed you know when these uh, what what to us looked like quick and scruffy parts had, had appear and, and didn't do the, the amiga justice i mean I've, I've since you know spent 30 years in the games industry and i'm well aware of how things work now but um back being a sort of uh, in my early 20s um sort of naive and, uh, and angry um i used to get really pissed off about it but um you know it's 
it's what really inspired us to to go all out for, for to do what what we could really, and, and it, it was just a lot of fun doing that. Well, um, two of the early titles were Full Contact and Alien Breed, and uh, yeah, uh, of course, Alien Breed kind of went on to much more things. Um, why didn't you continue Full Contact? Um, I think the the early, the early um, plan, if if any, if there was any plan, it, it was to sort of. Uh, visit a number of arcade genres, really, and 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 do and do what we could in each genre, and and, and try to impress. Um, I, 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 if I'm honest, I don't think Full Contact was, was the greatest game. I mean, we actually released it um, at nine ninety nine or something. We didn't really feel it had, had the value of a, a full full game back then. Um, it, it looked great, and it had a, a snazzy demo title scene and things like that, and the sound was awesome. Um, but I, you know, I think we we all all the time we'd kind of got our eyes on bigger and better things, and obviously that was just the first title, really. Other than a, a game that uh, the guys had, had done, uh, which got released by Codemasters, uh, Miami Chase, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I think it was also the, the first kind of um, you know half mega mega game, and everything after that became one meg, uh, which which really allowed us to do an awful lot more. Yeah, um, Alien Breed. What a title! Um, yeah. w- what what kind of inspired this above view idea? Um, well, you know, I mean, I think you know, you got to look far, really. I mean, you, you know, you've got uh, a few games like Gauntlet knocking around at the time, but yeah, I mean, the whole, the whole, the whole you know, we were massive Aliens fans, and and and, and it just just seemed to click, um, you know, doing doing the game like that really, and obviously capturing the atmosphere of the of the movie. I mean, uh, we, we had somewhat of a little run with twenty first century Fox, uh, but we did get some. There is in existence somewhere, I believe, a, a scruffy fax piece of paper from twenty first century saying it was okay, we could do it. So it was it wasn't licensed, of course, but um, you know, we, we just didn't know how any of that kind of worked back then. And uh, the sound was completely stunning for that. You could tell Alistair just got a sampler. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> well, yeah, um, you know, I think the whole point of us doing Amiga games, so half the memory was given over to sound um, because we just felt it's such a huge uh, aspect to, of the game and the atmosphere that if, if we used half the memory for audio and, and used it well, then, you know, we, we could really create uh, something special. You know, talking about audio there, I think for me, you know, looking back at kind of games that were released on both the Amiga and the Atari ST, that is probably the biggest difference that you noticed because the sound chip on the Atari couldn't touch the Amiga, could it? Oh God, no, no, it was uh, far more, you know, far, far more capable. Uh, and and again, if you've got an awful lot more memory available as well, you know, you, you can do so much more sophisticated effects and, and sampling and everything else, and, and it just, it just. You know, stood stood miles apart from from the ST, which is exactly the effect we wanted. Well, um, one thing as well that was unique was uh, Team Seventeen used pretty much ninety nine percent Amiga hardware and assembly code to create the um, games. That, that that's fantastic for me that you were using the actual machine to create yeah, the yeah, games for the machine. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of other people used, you know, uh, I, I guess uh, dare say professional setups used. PC and um, SNASM kits and all the rest of it. And we we just used the Amigas. You know, every, everything was produced on the Amiga, um, simply because we just felt that that's all, that's all we needed, really. Um, and you know, other than you know, Alistair and his sampler and all the rest of it, um, 
you know, it was it was great. I think it was a, it was a great sort of um, sort of rubber stamp for the for the uh, machine that we could do everything on it really. And I I absolutely love the variety of games that Team Seventeen did. So as you were saying, the genres they had a massive kind of different types like platformers, bowling sims, you know, fighting games. It was yeah. it, it was fantastic. Um, was it hard to adapt to these new genres? Well, no, I, th- I think you know we, we, we'd sit around and we'd, there were lots of things we'd want to do and, and, and dip us toe into different games and do our versions of, of, of games that we liked and things like that. I mean, I think certainly that first three or four years, it was uh, you know really fueled on enthusiasm and, and naivety and everything else and just doing it for the hell of it really um there was no great plan i think it's only when um we had you know absolutely massive success in worms that um we really had to take another approach really at the background really um sort of 95 onwards that the, the industry uh, and the technology was shifting and changing and, and it, it, it wasn't a uh, an environment which was which is no, you know, any longer friendly really for for a, an outfit like us. And I don't think it's really been like it was in the Amiga days for sort of starting up, just cracking on uh, until recent last two or three years on mobile. Really, I think um, there was like a great middle middle age of, of, of gaming, if you like, which was on sort of walled fence console development, and uh, you know, just I think the the, the industry was. Producing some great games now and again, but it's kind of in, in a rut for for developers, really. Yeah, it kind of went down the route of like um, you had to have like movie studio sized teams to do a game, didn't you, for quite a long time? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, um, you know, obviously all our early games are sort of three, four people at max, really. Um, and I think you know we, we got up to eighty on one game, uh, not on Amiga, but certainly on, on consoles and stuff, and. That, that becomes crazy and then you know I think some of the Ubisoft games recently have had like a thousand staff um, on them which is just I, I just dread to think you know it's like I know some artists sat there saying well yeah what did you do I, I did that rock so, <laughs> um, yeah, I dread to think I mean when I was at Activision a few years ago when we were doing the mobile Call of Duty I think it was 80 staff on that on a mobile game so just just creating titles and content like that is it's phenomenal undertaking you know and I, I just don't know where the fun is in that to be honest and uh, i think you've seen a lot of um developers leaving larger studios and doing their own startups and finding themselves again and uh, uh, so i certainly appreciate how, how that feels one game that team 17 did that you know when i was younger me and my brother used to love this game was um body blows yeah um, and I remember that came out. It was before Street Fighter came out on the Amiga, Street Fighter 2, wasn't it? It was around about the same time. Um, so we got to talk to sort of, uh, Danny and Junior, the, the art and code team of it, um, and we, we just kind of went for it. And that was, but it, it was really, wasn't really inspired by Street Fighter. It was in, inspired by other fighting games um, uh, that, was, that were elsewhere, in, import, import only in Japan and things. So... But yeah, I mean, we, we had an awful lot of success with that. I mean, we were pretty lucky in that we, we'd done an half decent game, and um, uh, and and Street Fighter was just awful on Amiga. And, and again, it was one of these hastily produced ports, um, which which wasn't a great game. 
Because I know around the time like Mortal Kombat had just come out and Street Fighter was obviously big on the Super Nintendo, but I remember being an Amiga user, you wanted like a great beat-em-up game to play at home, and you guys just, you know, you filled the gap just at the right time, didn't you? Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think we, we're fortunate we timed it right. Um, I say the, the the game that pretty much most of the market was looking towards was a bit of a flop, um, and our game was just honest and it played well and it looked good. Um, and you know, I, th- I think we kind of delivered, and it was, it was really successful for us. Really, I think we did like a couple of follow-ups uh, to it, but never never touched it after that because uh, every, everybody kind of went separate ways. Well, uh, another game as well that was um, kind of filled a gap in the Amiga world was Super Frog, which was this kind of fast platformer. Um, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, the inspiration for that obviously was uh, you know the Sonic and the Nintendo stuff, and we we just did as own as own spin on it. Really, I mean, um, the Frog was originally supposed to get super superpowers by drinking Newcastle Brown Ale, and that was later changed to Lucas Aid, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> And it was it was going to have a jolly accent and everything, but we just we we couldn't get uh, we couldn't get the license and stuff for the things that we wanted. So. But anyway, the game the, the game worked out really well. Um, I think it was probably one of the most accomplished titles that we did in terms of the playability and sort of balance curve and, and everything else. It, it was good fun and people liked it. it didn't sell as well as any as some of the other titles, but uh, I think it was one of those titles that we. We'd finished and put down and, and thought, yeah, we're pleased with that. Well, it had that uh, great comical Eric Swartz intro as well. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, again that was going back to you know some of the demo stuff and um, you know I'd, I'd got to know a few of these people, so we thought it'd be just a great opportunity to have an intro by by Eric Swartz. So uh, we went and just approached him and uh, and did it. You know, it's uh, we did quite a few things like that. Um, we went back to sort of people in the Amiga community that. Uh, that, that, that were known and, and I think would, would sort of people would uh, get excited about. So we did quite a bit of that. You know, around that time, obviously, um, you know, it was kind of just before the internet boom kind of came around um, the early 90s. Uh, how important were magazine reviews to you back then? You know, we lived and died by them. It's uh, you know, quite the reverse of today where everything's online. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the only way that people found out about, you know, games really, other than word of mouth. Um, you know, it was, it, was, it was either the playground, the, the class, classroom at college, or it was a magazine, and, you know, the cover discs and everything else. That, you know, that, that, was, that was so vital to the industry back then. And um, I think that was, that was part, part of uh, the excitement and was the anticipation of, you know, actually getting code in your hand and, and, and having a look at the games where, obviously, you can just see everything now, either on YouTube or download it in an instant. And... Um, you can sort of just sort of brush past uh, things really quickly now, but you had to really actually wait for it and kind of earn the, the, earn the right to have a look at it uh, back then. Which magazines did you really get on with and which ones didn't you? Was were there any kind of different ones? Um, we had we had good, really good friendships with um, The One and See You Amiga and, and people like this. And the, the ones down at... Um, in Bath were, were a bit different. So Amiga format was great, and a few of us, and then, you know, there's... There was, I think, some sort of well-published spats, uh, spats with um, Amiga Power, uh, a couple of individuals there. But, um, you know, these, these things happened, really. You know, it's uh, largely speaking got on with everybody and, and have done to this day, really. Um, could you tell us the story of about how you met Andy Davidson and uh, kind of worm started? Yeah, that was, that was down at an ECTS show. Um, as usual, at that, at that time, we'd... we'd um, 
we did, we did invite people to obviously bring demos and stuff they were working on because we're working with a lot of indie developers. We, we didn't really have anybody um, in house at the time. All, all the teams were sort of built and uh, sort of thrived independently. Pretty, again, pretty much like the mobile side of things these days. Um, but yeah, Andy, Andy turned up. It was quite obvious he was, he was quite quite mental in a, in a good way. And it's you know again such real sort of enthusiasm for, for what for what it was it was developing or had been developing for ages and it developed this game um called total work total wormage that um developed in uh, amiga basic uh, blitz basic sorry um and uh, i just lost the competition for amiga formats i mean it didn't even place i don't think in, in the final sort of four or whatever and, and we just Loved the game, thought it had something. To be fair, we, we really only saw it as a budget release initially, but that that kind of changed um, in time. But you know, and and he got involved with us for a few years, and um, you know, we, we sort of did various sort of worms um, with him and, and without him, and, and all the rest of it. But you know, Andy was a very sort of strong-minded um, individual um, that, that just wanted to do games his way and. The industry had started to change and didn't really allow people to work like he wanted to work. So that became a problem as time went on. And, you know, we, we'd suddenly gone from, you know, three or four people on, on games to, you know, 15, 20 people contributing to, to a title. And um, that that didn't really allow people, just one pe- one person to sit on a game and make a game anymore, which which we became you know, we came at odds with really, but um, you know, at the at the time, Andy had uh, an, an unbelievable time. It was you know proper sort of rags to riches, overnight success. He was sort of in his early twenties and had a number one title uh, on console as well as uh, Amiga. Um, and all he really cared about was having a, an Amiga game released. Really, that's, that's all he wanted. Because uh, I don't think there was many other stronger devotees of the Amiga than Andy himself. Uh, were you surprised by the success? Because it was so late in the Amiga's life. Like, we have kind of wrote it off a little bit and then suddenly yeah. Worms came out. And... Yeah, um, I think, you know, I mean, we we'd, we were a little bit worried at the time about, you know, because the Amiga had been very good to us and um, it was it was kind of in a decline at the time. People were going nuts playing it, people were going crazy playing it, you know, all hours of the day. Um, and it was just fairly obvious to us that we'd got something very special on his hands because... People were just so addicted to it and, and, and just loved it to bits. So, you know, whilst we were probably a little bit surprised about how well it, it took to um, PlayStation and, and PC and stuff, we, we weren't surprised at people's reactions to it because um, we'd seen it firsthand uh, and then we were all party to it. You know, there was worms parties all the time. So um, we, we knew something was going to happen, but obviously we were delighted that it just went uh, crazy, really. Why do you think it was such a success, and what, what is it about Worms? I, I think, and, and, and again, it's been a, a, a good level of looking at, back at the original Worms and looking at some of the sort of mobile hits the, the last year or two, um, is that because it, you know, it, it didn't give a, a stuff about how it looked. Um, it was all about the, the, the devil and the detail and the gameplay, really, and, and the fact that Worms is almost like an instrument for for the humour. The game just, you know, worked brilliantly as a, as a social um, pastime, really, and and, and just uh, the fact that it was different every time, and there was always ludicrous events happening, um, and you know, it just caught the imagination from people putting in their own names to the teams, to the samples, to everything else, and 
you know, and it, it, it was very hard to find another game that that you could play with three or four people for hours on end and, and, and never really tire of. You know, you guys must have been, like, working so hard back then because you look at the, you know, the list of games that you guys brought out in, like, just, like, half a decade. Um, yeah. Some phenomenal quality, even, like, Super Stardust and, you know, the original Stardust game as well. Uh, well, that, that was... That was um developed in Finland by uh, what we were now Housemark. Um, so, you know, very high-caliber developers, um, great people we've known ever since them and worked with a few times back, uh, back in the 2000s as well. You know, they're tremendously uh, competent uh, programmers and technical developers, really, who did just sensational work, really. You know, um, we were working on a lot of stuff. I mean, I think... From '95 to probably 2000, we developed. We'd, we'd started developing on a lot of titles, but many, many just didn't see the light of day because we were having to shift uh, development strategies, and, and because the, the technology at the time was, was just racing away, uh, it became very difficult to um, develop for actually. You know, and, and we we grew from being sort of eight or nine people internally in, in about, what, 93 to 97, 98 were 100 people or sort of thereabouts. And that became almost impossible to, to manage that kind of growth. And I see t- today, you know, I think the similar kind of thing happened at Rovio when they were um, a dozen people in uh, just, just when Angry Birds came out. And then three years later, there were 900 people. So... You I think it's almost impossible to manage, you know, when there's that many people. You just people don't have the experience to to just manage that thing. It's it's, uh, it's sad to see, and it's it's sometimes awful to be embroiled in in those sort of growth pains, really. Um, but you know, I think it, it, it it's when you sort of uh, you sort of the links to to people socially break down, and and then you just can't hope to. Um, really get things together like you could so I certainly preferred working on the sort of sub 10 man team titles Well Stardust and Super Stardust I mean they were you know they were essentially like you could say Asteroids clones really weren't they? Yeah, yeah. But, yeah I think they were yeah Were you surprised um, how, how well received they were? Uh, they were? They were phenomenally well received I mean you know they may well have been kind of uh, obviously inspired by, by Asteroids but they sort of um, technology used in, in developing the art for the games the, the slick coding and all the rest of it um, and, and certainly, the, like the, the tunnel sequence in Stardust was kind of really, uh, you know, just just an amazing demo of the Amiga's potential. Really, I know you did like a, a version for the Amiga 1200, like the AGA um, version yeah. as well. Did, did the AGA chipset help you guys do a lot more? Did you find it like a good um, yeah? We could. Do, the thing is, it, it was just it was a small step up, I think. Um, so there's there's there improvements. I mean, at the time, um, we were working pretty closely with Commodore. Because uh, obviously they got, um, the CD32 was out, which used the AGA chipset, and, and we, we we were there to sort of try and help support um, Commodore's efforts, to be honest. And but I think it was just a little bit too late, and, and the CD32 just wasn't uh, the the machine Commodore kind of hoped it was, and it just wasn't. They weren't supported really by other software houses that well, um, so there just wasn't much, you know, in, in the way of titles for it really. Um, and as I say, it was, I think it was a small step rather than the big step which you probably needed. Well, I got um, a PlayStation 4 VR recently, and um, Stardust on that, isn't it? You got su- your Super Stardust VRs on there. Did, did you think 22 years later that would be a franchise? Yeah, that's that's super- right? Well, the thing is, like, good games are good games, right? And, uh, you know, I, I think 
those you know those guys again you know producing um, you know status now is it looks phenomenal on playstation 3 and 4 and, and, and vr so you know that's the same guys who did that game back back in the day so you know i think i think as long as you know the basics of the game are there and everything's done i mean you can, you can just do so much visually now it's uh, it, it's impressive uh, a real vision impressive game that you guys made was um alien breed 3d um how much of a kind of technical challenge was that to get that first person shooter style uh it was, well, it was very hard i mean i mean andy who, who did the code um he was, at, he was at university york uni at the time uh just doing it in a project by himself um uh, which essentially was doom on the amiga um when you late when you later you did the alien breed 3d2 um which is essentially quake which is a full 3d uh, engine. I mean, it, it, he's just a very clever lad <clears throat> that, that could do that kind of stuff and still does that kind of stuff today. So, you know, it, it, was, it was exciting for us. It was a bit of a departure in, for, in terms of the game, but I think that was more um, really Amiga owners wanting, you know, to see their machine doing that stuff. And well, again, when you think back to it, I mean, it was a, a, a kind of small window on, on the engine, that, um, unless you had some kind of a a new 3 3D board or maths board processor in the Amiga that that could really power it, um, and that that was the problem. So it, it was previous to that, Alien was all about sprites and uh, being clever tricks. But when it was actual, you know, raw grunt in terms of processing, it, it, it needed some assistance really. And I think that's you know when we when we looked, we we're talking about the AGA Amiga and CD32 and stuff. It was perhaps you know that kind of processing grunt we could have, you know, required and, and done fantastic things with um, back, in, back in the day. So I think, you know, to Amiga fans, it was always kind of a bit of a challenge, really, wasn't it? It was always like, you know, people telling you, you your machine can't run Doom. So, yeah. you know, I guess that probably inspired it quite a lot. Yeah, there was a lot of that stuff. And, you know, I mean, we, we never sort of expected to see those, those kind of games and, and that kind of software running on an Amiga at the time. So, you know, for, for it to do it and prove and do that, uh, yeah, it's, it, was, it was all about that. And, you know, people, it's what, you know, people got very excited about it. So um, we, it got Game of the Year as well, in one, one thing, which was delivering the impossible or, you know, doing stuff that, you know, made people, you know, really excited and happy it was it was good. You know, you mentioned the uh, the second Alien Breed 3D game as well, which, uh, you know, I remember reading in, like, one of the magazines at the time that, like, the game was that powerful that there wasn't actually an Amiga powerful enough to run it properly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, you had to have some crazy fast processor thing on a uh, strap to your machine and, uh, and put it inside a fridge to cool it down. But um, it was kind of a little bit ahead of, ahead of its time. Uh, and it was, it was doing things that it really shouldn't have been doing. Um, so, but yeah, we, we did it. And I think what we did, because um, that was right, right at the sort of, end really of, of the Amiga's uh, kind of commercial interest in, in it as, a, as a marketplace so we not too long after that we, we ended up just giving the source code away uh, to back to the fans kind of thing so uh, which was we thought was a, a nice thing to do so because the, the you know the people that were, were really into that kind of thing uh, could get a lot more out of it. From a commercial perspective, though, releasing a game that you know so few people could run—that must uh, was that a difficult decision to like you know to, to justify releasing it. That that wasn't a, a cold, cold-hearted business decision. That that was a you know a, a kind of farewell on the Amiga and look, we, we, we developed this title. We might as well put it out there. You know, we were pretty busy with 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 worms and everything else at the, at the time. So 
I think just in general, the, the Amiga um, disappeared out of stars and and, and it, it just dwindled away, really. It was kind of a sad end after, you know, pretty good six or seven years in, in sort of mass market. Um, so, you know, it was a shame. And we just, you know, at that time, we weren't six or seven people anymore. We were like a, a, quite a large uh, studio uh, for the UK. And there was just lots of other things happening on PC and, and other consoles. And obviously, the, when, as soon as the PlayStation came out, that kind of shifted uh, the UK development uh, in its entirety, really. And uh, a lot of the independent, small independent developers kind of uh, struggled to stay stay afloat after that. Well, um, one kind of well, semi-recent thing that I saw was the um, Alien Breed games that have been redone. And yeah. uh, I've actually downloaded these, and they're all great. Um how involved were you with that, and what did it feel like getting it into the public eye again? Well, yeah, I was very involved with it. Um, we, you know, we worked very closely. We had quite a lot of success on Xbox Live with with Worms, um, and we we started talking to Microsoft um, about doing a, a sort of a rebirth of Alien Breed, which we'd always talked about it. We'd, we'd had probably two or three titles in in development over the years, but nothing ever came out um, or made it so far. Um, so, you know, we, we got the opportunity to work with Unreal Engine um, and we just thought we, we you know, we'd got a good team and we, we, we'd put a decent Ambrid uh, tie out together. I think we, we made, in hindsight, made a couple of wrong decisions. We should have made the entire thing uh, co-op play and we we kind of got led down the path a little bit by Microsoft to do episodic content because they were very keen on um, having episodic games at the time, so we, we sort of did a three-episode thing where I think I had at that time again. I do it co-op and, and one, one game really, but we're certainly very happy with how it looked and played and felt. Um, again, a bit of a departure, but it certainly felt like the original game to us making it anyway. Had the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, are you keeping an eye on Team Seventeen because they've been releasing like The Escapist, which is a really you know, 8-bit retro kind of title on Worms WMD, which is a new kind of really good Worms. Well, as I see, that you know, they put, put stuff out. I mean, to be honest, five miles down the road, I've still got quite a few friends there, you know, so um, I'm, I'm quite aware of what, what they're doing. I mean, I, I'm just doing completely different stuff these days. So, um, yeah, I, I have a look at what they're doing and, and, and play the games and uh, I drink a pint with uh, two or three of their guys. So, yeah, we see what's going on. It's amazing that, you know, it's really a testament to the, the amazing games that you guys have done over the years that are still going now, like, you know, over two decades on. Well, you know, they're, they're a different um, shape and different function these days. Um, you know, I think they, uh, they've been pr- pretty bright about how they've got about, they've, they've pulled everything together and, 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 and allow people, you know, uh, like Moldy Tooth and stuff to, to, you know, get their games published and uh, boxed and whatever else um, that, you know, to, to do that thing on consoles is, is, is quite a task, really. Um, so I, th- I think, you know, it's, it's fair play that they're, they're acting as a sort of a, a publishing um, solution for those people. And, like, Worms must be on, like, every single platform in existence now, like some form oh, of Worms. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of ran the game for, what, 15 years or something. Um, so, yeah, I, I played a lot of Worms on a lot of formats and... Um, I have not played it much since leaving five, six years ago. So I've played too many games of Worms. <laughs> OD'd on it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Martin, what are you doing these days then? I, I, I work with quite a bunch of um, different 
developers uh, for a while, uh, sort of consulting on developing developing the companies and bits and pieces, business development stuff. But the last three years, I've been um, involved with a, a mobile uh, title. So I've been involved with New Star Soccer um, and recently New Star Cricket and some other stuff that we've done. I mean, New Star Soccer's done like 27 million installs now. Nice. So that's, you know, we, to be honest, we're just... It's a different um, place out there on, on mobile. It's not so much about uh, like the old school um, getting excited about the developers and the teams and things. People just don't really care on the phones. So we put stuff out there and we just don't really talk about it or shout about it very much. Um, it won a BAFTA and things like that. And so, you know, we've, we've, we've done all right with it. Um, but I, I just just remain completely in the background now and, uh, and we just uh, let what we do speak for itself. You let the games live on their own merit, then. That's, that's absolutely. Cool. Yeah. yeah, you know, we don't do any hype. We very, very rarely do any kind of interviews or anything these days, and just growing old gracefully and having a good time. Well, if our listeners, obviously, you know, who know all your games from back in the day, they want to try out some of your new stuff. What do they look for? Is there any website they can go to? Or? Well, it's, it's just the, the App Store and Google Google Play, basically. I mean, um, it, it, it'd be hard pressed to find many people in the UK who haven't played New Star Soccer. Um, it's incredibly addictive. Um, it, it, I mean, one of the one of the things that sort of drew me to that was sort of very similarities about um, that and wor- the sort of early version of Worms. Really, not that they're the same game, but there's the same spirit about it. Really, because the guys, it, you know, put most of these soccer together is uh, again just a, an, in- an incredibly talented individual, um, and it, it's just it's a wonderful piece of software. It's a lot of fun, um, and that's you know this free to play which I know is a, it's not a great phrase to use for, for, for people these days who are hardcore, hardcore. Um, but it, it's as that's why it's had 27 million people and I think around 8 or 9 million people in the UK play it which is a fair slice of the population well Martin it's been amazing talking to you and getting um, all your memories and finding out the stories behind some of our all time favourite games yeah I'm glad I can remember some stuff <laughs> <laughs> hey, so, well, thank you so much for coming on alright no problem